the main point, I think the main result in finance is that expected return and risk are related. Now know this with JC Herrera and Cole Conkling. Welcome back, everybody. Today is a special day as we have our first guest of the show. Dr. Julio Cacho will actually be a frequent guest of the show. Um, And side note, he is our business partner and a lot smarter than Cole and I. So before we get started, let me make a brief introduction. Dr. Cacho is founder of Quantra Capital, a Houston-based asset manager and chief investment officer at Inscription Capital, where he oversees more than $1 billion in assets under management. Prior to that, Julio was Director of Risk and Performance for Ziff Brother Investments, one of the most prestigious investment firms in the country based in New York City. Julio has a PhD in Economics and Finance from Princeton University and has dedicated his entire professional career to understanding the investment markets. Currently, Julio also teaches finance at Rice University. So without further ado, Julio, welcome to Now Know This. Thank you, Juan Carlos, and thank you, Cole. So today we're going to talk about risk and reward. So Julio, uh, to start us off, can you, can you tell the audience a little about your background and experience with risk and reward? Sure, Cole. So I have dedicated most of my academic and professional life to understand the relationship between risk and expected return. So Julio, you often talk to me and Cole about how risk are two sides of the same coin. Can you dig deeper on that and explain what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, so what I mean is that you get compensated for the risk that you take. So if there is no risk, then the the expected returns that you should expect are relatively low because there is no compensation. There is no much compensation for that. What about when people often say, you know, I found an investment that is very low risk, but it's making me a good 10, 15% return. It's very unlikely that something like that exists because uh, if people knew about that, everybody will be buying that asset or investing. So that will make the price of the asset go immediately up. When we talk about risk, what are you measuring? What should people think about when they talk about risk? So to... To me, risk is uh, an event in the future that has positive probability in which uh, if that event realizes, then you are going to feel a lot of pain. And it can be multidimensional, right? Meaning it doesn't have to be one factor. Because, for example, in the investment world, in the public markets, a lot of people identify risk as standard deviation or volatility. But that's only one one aspect of risk, correct? There are multiple measures. Uh, volatility is just, is just one, one of them. And it's, it's mainly to measure uh, the dispersion or the historical dispersion of the, of the returns. So Julio, go into that a little bit more. I mean, can you explain uh, you know, what volatility slash standard deviation is? I mean, it, I like to think of it as you know, a distribution, like a, you know, like a bell curve distribution. Uh, can you go into that a little bit more? Uh, so standard deviation is just a statistical me- metric uh, that basically measures the dispersion 
of a random variable. That's what is uh, standard deviation. And volatility is, um, it's, it's, it's basically the same thing, uh, just that it's applied, it's, it's, it's basically the standard deviation of, of, uh, of financial asset returns. So for example, like what, what's like a historical volatility of the S&P 500? If you refer about the unconditional, which is just taking kind of the historical average, uh, it has been around 20%. Got it. Okay, so moving on from volatility and standard deviation. You know, Cole, there's something that I think a lot of people fail to realize when they're analyzing risks, and that's the difference between systemic risk and idiosyncratic risk. And before I give examples, Julio, can you briefly define for everybody what systemic risk is and what idiosyncratic risk is? So in, in, uh, in finance theory, uh, basically people say that um, an idiosyncratic risk is uh, it's a risk that you can diversify. And systematic risk is a risk that you cannot diversify that, that, that simple. Like a systematic risk, right, could be like COVID affected, you know, pretty much the entire global economy. And, and even a well-diversified portfolio couldn't really escape that kind of risk, right? Whereas like idiosyncratic risk may be that, you know, you bought um, an oil company and oil prices went down and the oil company is now bankrupt. And that risk is to that specific company, right? Is that the kind of the right way to think about it? Yes, exactly. So to, to further that point, think about it this way, right? If you're analyzing a stock, a company, a private equity deal, a bond, okay, and you spend night and day analyzing the ins and outs of that investment, you can be very confident that you've seen all the risks and make an investment on that. But keep in mind, that the systemic risks of the overall market will always impact you if you just analyze the idiosyncratic risks. And so this is what we mean about um, understanding risk, right? That's why we're doing this podcast is we want investors to think about all the risks, not just, you know, because it's hard to do, right? I mean, we, you get very focused on one company. Or one type of risk. Or one, yeah, one type of risk, and you forget about other types of risk that may be lurking. Yeah, so like, and I think one of other- the biggest reasons people sometimes get surprised by the, system, the systemic risks, right? Like COVID, or like a war, or something that they say, well, we never saw that coming. You still have to be able to prepare for those when calculating the risk-reward of an investment right? It, it, you can do all the work you want on a value. You can be the value investor and follow Warren Buffett's philosophy and analyze every company to you're tired, but you can't escape the systemic risks that no one, no one in their right minds can predict, right? You don't, no one predicted COVID because it was unpredictable, right? No one's going to predict when exactly the next war will happen or when the next systemic risk will happen precisely because that's what they are. They're systemic risks. You just have to kind of set, you just have to have a acknowledgement that they have happened in the past, they will continue to happen in the future, and make sure that you're aware that they exist. Yeah, but I think one, one important thing here is that uh, what is important for the investor are the systematic risks. Um, the idiosyncratic risk, uh, you don't get compensated for that as an investor. 
you only get compensated for the risks that uh, you cannot diversify. The other ones are not priced in. There is no, there's no reward it's for kind of, It's kind of like, Cole, it's kind of like if you said to someone, um, imagine that there's a pool of sharks, okay? And imagine that someone doesn't know that sharks will kill you, right? So someone jumps into the pool and swims to the other side. Now imagine there's another person who knows that sharks will kill you. They might not ever jump in the pool because they know that the risk is the shark will kill you. So if you don't know the risks very clearly, you're more likely to take them, right? And I think that's where we're at right now, where a lot of people will take a lot of risks, or much more risks than they can actually tolerate, but because they can't see them, they'll take those risks. And then that's, a, that's also why a lot of people get surprised, right? When yeah. those risks don't come to fruition. I like that analogy because it's, it's uh, the guy that jumps into the pool of sharks and didn't know it, you know, he just got lucky, right? Whereas if I know the shark's going to kill me, it's like, well, yeah, I could jump in and maybe not, I could get lucky too, but am I willing to do that? And so you go back and you can think about all the, you know, the Bill Gates and the Michael Dells and all that that dropped out of Harvard and great schools or, you know, to start their companies. And that was a risk, right? Bill Gates could have dropped out of Harvard and failed and but those are the but those, opportunity. But those are the risks of successful people. What we don't see are all the people yeah. that took we, the same risk that didn't see make it. We don't all the uh, Harvard dropouts that uh, never started Microsoft. Correct. <laughs> I mean, just by the simple notion of saying, I'm going to start my own company, we know the statistics of that, right? 70% of these companies, of new companies, will fail within three years. So the odds are very difficult, are very against you from starting off from scratch to trying to say, hey, I'm going to be a successful entrepreneur by starting my own company. The, the probabilities of you succeeding at that are very low but yet a lot of people will still take those risks. Right. And so Julio, is it fair to say that in your mind and you know, when you invest your own money, you are doing so in a way that gives you a better probability of reaching whatever goals you have? Rather than uh, I mean, uh, what we know is that uh, there are two elements when you are investing, right? One is uh, the probability distribution of the assets and the other is your risk tolerance. And the risk tolerance is very personal. Uh, so there are people that are may, maybe willing to take a lot of risk. Uh, as you said, maybe there are some people within those that don't know exactly what the risk they are taking. But definitely there are people that know, but still they want to take those risks. So that's just a, it's just a preference. It's just a taste. Um, so in, in, my particular, in my particular case, um, I consider myself that I'm risk tolerant, uh, uh, so I I just target based on my risk tolerance my my my, uh, my 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 return. So I know based on my risk tolerance what expected return I will I will get for that. If if you've got a great financial plan and you've you know like in our previous episode we've talked about bucketing out your investments. Um, and, you know, if you think about the third bucket, which is like the high risk, high expected return bucket, um, if you if you've got a lot of cash on hand, you've got your third buckets only for retirement, you don't need it for 20, 30 years, you may be more tolerant, right, of that uh, investment being very volatile and going up and down because, OK, yeah, my stocks, you know, my stock portfolio is down 20 percent. But you know what? I don't need to sell it this year. Um I don't need the money, so I'm a little more tolerant of the movement. Is 
is one way I think about it. And do, do um, you agree? Yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. Your risk tolerance depends on your particular goals. So uh, Julio, if, you need if the I money, have 100% equity portfolio, and I think I'm not, I'm realizing that that might be too much risk for me. The, 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 the best thing to do then is to begin diversifying from the asset class of equities. Correct. So talk, so talk to us a little bit about the impact that diversification can have to decreasing risk. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, diversification, I, I think is the main tool that we have to, uh, to max, I would say to maximize, uh, I would say the risk reward profile of your investments. Uh, so it's, it's one way to only have exposure to systematic risk and not idiosyncratic risk. Remember that you don't get compensated for idiosyncratic risk. So if you want to avoid uh, taking idiosyncratic risk, the best thing you can do is to diversify as much as you can. So Cole, let's, uh, say, that, let's say that we have a, a portfolio that has 50% world stocks in it and 50% world bonds in it. Okay. And that what we've done now is essentially created this diversified portfolio for someone, right? That might, let's just say it might give them an expected return of 5% with an expected risk or volatility. Let's just use volatility to simplify it here of 10%. So 5% is your expected return. 10% is the movement the standard deviation, right? That the movements will happen within the portfolio. Okay. Now let's say that someone says, you know what? 5% is not good enough. I want, I need, I need a higher return to meet my goals. Now they only have two options. Take the 50, 50 portfolio and put more money into the riskier asset class stocks, stocks, correct. To try to increase your expected return that way, right? But you're also going to be increasing your volatility, your risk. Okay. Because they're, they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Correct. So yes, if you want a higher return from a starting point of a 50, 50 portfolio, just to keep it simple. Okay. You're going to have to take more risk. One way to do it is to just move more money from the bonds to the stocks. Another way to do it is to maybe introduce riskier assets like private equity or, you know, real estate or other assets. Venture in capital. Venture capital. Exactly. That's another way of thinking about how you can increase your returns, but there is no free lunch, right? If you're going to increase your returns, you're going to have to be okay. You have to stomach increasing your risk as well. Another way to do it though, is actually to what a lot of people do in real estate. In real estate, a lot of people will use leverage, right? Which is basically borrowing money. So in real estate, this is very common. Most people who own a home have a mortgage on it, right? Most people who invest in a real estate property, be it a multifamily building or a commercial property or even land, will have some sort of financing on it. A bank has, giving, has given them a loan. So when they do their calculations of what expected returns they're going to have on their investment, they're calculating it with leverage. To give you an example, imagine that you bought a home that was worth $100. Now, imagine that the bank lent you 50% of that. So they, the bank is going to give you $50, okay? 
And just for argument's sake, let's say the interest rate is zero. It's a free loan, okay? And you're going to put $50 of your own money up. Now let's say the house goes up 50% in value. What ends up happening there is that you made now a 100% return on your investment. Why? Because you take the $50 that you put in, right? And then the bank gives you another 50, but to buy the home that's worth 100. So if the home goes from 100 to 150, which is a 50% increase, you only put $50 in. You're, you now made $50, right? So you made 100% return. That's what leverage is. Yeah, and a lot of people miss that because they think the home went up to $150, my return's 50%. No, your return's 100% because of the leverage. But, but Juan, Carlos, what's the flip side of that? What if the home goes down in value? Then you also lose all of your money. So leverage is the same example. Uh, yeah, so if, so, so if the home now is worth $100 and goes down $50 to $50 and you only put $50 in it and you borrowed $50, well, guess what? You go to sell the home for $50. The buyer gives you the $50. That $50 doesn't go to you. It goes, goes to, to the, the bank. bank. All your $50 is gone. Correct. You've now lost 100% of your money, right? So Again, leverage it's is a two-sided coin. Exactly. So leverage is a very good way of, of seeing, right, the two sides of this risk paradigm, right? So Again, to repeat, there's two ways to increase your risk if you so choose to from, my, from a diversified portfolio. If you, if you own a diversified portfolio, one way to increase your risk is to move your money into the more risky asset class. Another way is to use leverage. So Julio, yeah. So let's go back to the 50-50 portfolio stock and bond example. So now let's just say you want to decrease your risk. How would you do that? More, more diversification? I mean, in that case, what you could do is you reduce your exposure to stocks and increase your exposure to bonds. Julio, what about adding diversification uh, to another asset class? Would that, would that be another way to maybe decrease risk? I mean, if this 50-50 portfolio is not, doesn't include all the assets, yeah, you can always add more assets. The, but, but it will depend, right? I mean, it depends if those assets that you are adding are riskier or less risky than the ones that you already have. Right. And so just to go back real quick to the leverage point, I mean, we talked about real, a lot of real estate investments have a lot of leverage, but I mean, if we go more broad, I mean, a lot of public and private companies use a lot of leverage, right? I mean, big companies take loans and that's how that, I mean, so there's embedded leverage and equities, right? Um, obviously private equity has a lot of leverage. Venture capital has a lot of leverage. Um, so it's out there, you know, leverage is out there, um, whether you uh, think it's there or not, that risk is out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be people using leverage, but remember that it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's a uh, once you add all the leverage in the world, that's equal to zero, right? So there are going to be people using leverage and there are going to be people not using leverage. Actually, the opposite, right? So explain that a little bit uh, more. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Uh, so what I mean is that um, if you're using leverage, the definition is you're borrowing money. So someone is lending you that money, right? So if you net all the lendings and borrowings, that has to be equal to zero. Yeah, like my one person's liability is another person's asset. Exactly. Exactly. Julio, what would you advise people um, to do 
would it, would you go with the route, maybe concentrating your portfolio more into a riskier asset class, or would you recommend more the use of leverage? Okay, so the first step is uh, to diversify as much as you can, okay, as much as you can. So use all the asset classes uh, that you can get access to. That, that should be like kind of your starting point. Then you decide whether uh, that portfolio that you already have has too much risk for you or not. If it doesn't have too much risk and you want to take more risk, then uh, the best thing to do is actually to use leverage and increase your exposure to that portfolio. Uh, if you cannot use leverage for some reason, then the second best is to try to tilt your asset allocation to a riskier assets. That means have a little bit less diversification, probably. Now, the leverage, the, the use of leverage would only be recommended, though, I'm assuming, if the cost of leverage is less than the expected return, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, assuming that you can borrow to close to the risk-free rate. In a well-diversified portfolio, um, if it's not risk-free, then it should have a higher expected return than the risk-free rate. Therefore, you have a spread. And, and um, so in equilibrium, it has to have a spread. Therefore, uh, your expected return, even if you use leverage, should be positive. If you are doing correctly the leverage, and if you're diversifying correctly. So we'll get into a whole episode later about leverage uh, in and of itself. But I think I think one thing I want to end with and uh, kind of wrap it up with is, we touched on this a little earlier, but Hulu, can you explain uh, what a fat tail risk is and sometimes referred to as black swan events uh, from the famous book by Nicholas Taleb? I uh, wrote a book called The Black Swan. Uh, explain to the audience what a fat tail risk is or a black swan event. So I, I think uh, they mean different things, actually. So fat tail uh, means that you can have extreme uh, events or extreme returns with a non-trivial probability, positive probability. Um, so, so that means that you, you can actually experience um, a large uh, return, could be either positive or negative. Uh, so that's what it means, fat tail. A black swan, to me, uh, it means, uh, my interpretation is that even if you estimate the probability distribution of asset returns, maybe you don't include all the risks. Uh, and, and one reason could be because you're not aware of those. Uh, that have, they, they have never happened in the past. And maybe it's something that we believe it's almost impossible to happen. So uh, uh, let's remember that uh, financial assets are extremely different from um, a casino probabilities. Uh, in a casino, you know the probability distribution of the outcomes. 
you don't know the, ad the outcome that you're going to get, but at least you know the probability distributions. In finance, we don't know. We have no idea of the probability distributions. Uh, so we try to use historical data and some theories to try to have some idea about this probability distribution. And what we have found is that, yeah, these probability distributions have fat tails. Uh, you have very often extreme events. Um, and black swan, to me, will say that basically there are things that we don't know that we don't know. Uh, extreme events that we don't know that, that we don't know. So to use the black swan example, right, from the, from the book and just in general parlance, a black swan, think of it, uh, if you go and look at swans at a pond, and they're all white, and let's say you look at the same pond for a decade, and all you see is white swans. So you might think all swans are white, because I've all, only seen white swans. But then a black swan could be born, and now you have a black swan. That's kind of, that's the black swan event analogy, correct? Yeah, exactly. Which you didn't know that you didn't know that there were black swans. So until you see them is when you realized that they exist. So Julio, to summarize it up for everybody, um, let's say that someone is in your office sitting down and they're asking for the best advice in terms of risk reward. What should be the one takeaway you would suggest everyone you know pay attention to when they think about risk and reward? The main point, I think the main result in finance is that expected return and risk are related. So what that means is that uh, if you don't want to take any risk, you should expect low returns. And if you really want to take uh, or to have high expected returns in the future, then you need to be prepared to take a lot of risk. So that, I would say that's the main, the main takeaway. Risk and return are related. I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you, Julio. We enjoyed it, and I'm sure we'll have you back on a future episode. Julio, thank you so much for coming on. We learned a lot from you. We're going to be calling you up much more often in the future. And uh, everyone stick around for our next episode. That's all for now, folks. Thank you. Know this with JC Herrera and Cole Conkling.